from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. As with nearly every aspect of life, the coronavirus pandemic has affected how candidates campaign, how people vote, and, as a result, how credit union leaders advocate. But one constant remains amid these changes. The nonpartisan approach CUNA and the leagues take to support credit union-friendly candidates with messages of how credit unions advance their local communities and transform the financial lives of members, elected officials, constituents. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor with CUNA News. This episode, recorded shortly before the 2020 election, features a conversation with Trey Hawkins, CUNA's Deputy Chief Advocacy Officer for Political Action. He takes us through possible election scenarios and their implications for credit unions, priority races for the CUNA League advocacy team, advocacy advice for credit union leaders, and more. How is this election cycle different from others you've experienced? Well, the obvious answer is that we're in the middle of a global pandemic. I was trying to figure out the other day, this is like my 12th or 13th election cycle as a professional political campaigner, if you will. We've never had an election, at least in maybe going back to the Spanish flu a century ago, where we've conducted an, uh, you know, a national election in the middle of a global pandemic. And the impact on that has impacted everything from how candidates are campaigning, how we're doing our advocacy work in terms of the, you know, the meetings and the fundraisers and the things that we're doing are all virtual now rather than in person. Some candidates are going door to door, but a lot of in-person events aren't happening the way that they would have without the pandemic. But the biggest change that I think is maybe one of the more determinative impacts on the election outcome potentially is just how people are voting. We've seen virtually every state in the union has changed in some way, shape, or form how they're conducting the election to make it easier for people to vote early or vote by mail. And and Bill, I was actually looking up some statistics right before this. As of uh, the day we're recording this, about 19 days out before the election, 17 and a half million people have voted nationwide already early, which accounts for 12% of the entire turnout that we had in 2016. And then I was like, well, that seems like a lot. <laughs> and it is a lot. But I, I went back and did a little Googling. And as of this point, roughly the same time period in 2016, only 1.4 million people had voted in 2016 early by this point. So you're at several times multiple the number of people who have voted early. And I don't think you would have seen that. You know, there's a trend in recent years for more early voting across the country. But I don't think you would have seen that jump had it not been for the pandemic. Is there anything else behind the increase in absentee voting besides the pandemic? We're probably in a very, probably one of our more polarized periods, historically speaking. And you are seeing, if you look underneath those numbers, you know, 17 and a half million people have already voted. They're about two to one Democratic. In, in terms of registration, obviously, we don't know who they cast their ballot for because they haven't been counted yet. But in terms of people who are registered, Democrats are twice as likely to have voted by mail or voted early than Republicans. And that actually, uh, interestingly, tracks a little bit with the polling data that we, CUNA, have been conducting in some of the races we're engaged in. 
that uh, we ask the question from a strategic standpoint to time our communications to voters. You know, are you planning to vote early or are you planning to vote on election day? And we have seen that sort of partisan split, that Democrats are much more likely to say they're going to vote early, whereas Republicans are much more likely to say they're going to vote on election day. There are exceptions to that in different states. You know, a number of states have had very robust, but in fact, some states on the West Coast have had vote by mail for years now entirely vote by mail. So depending on where you are, it's a little more accepted as part of the process. And in other parts of the country, it's, it's brand new. So looking at the presidential election, what are the implications for credit unions if President Trump stays in office? I actually think the best way to think about this is not just at the presidential level, but in conjunction with the control of Congress. You know, certainly from a regulatory standpoint, whoever is president, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, has a lot of impact and influence over how credit unions are regulated. You know, the most obvious example that comes to mind is the CFPB director is an at-will employee, appointee of the president. And so if Trump is still in office, we could expect that his CFPB director, Kraninger, would stay in control of that agency. Whereas if Biden were elected, you would probably see someone who's a, a little more hard line on regulations appointed to that. But a lot of this has to depend on, I think the ultimate impact on credit depends on control of Congress. And that's something that, that we're very much engaged in, whereas, you know, CUNA doesn't get involved in the presidential election. And you can see it coming in a couple of different ways. We tend to think, and I think most observers agree at this point, that the House of Representatives will stay Democratic and that the jump ball, if you will, is in the Senate. Currently held by Republicans, Democrats may have a probably a decent chance, maybe better than 50-50 chance of picking up enough seats to claim the majority there. And if you have Trump with a Democratic House, maybe a Democratic Senate, you're probably going to have more of the same, more gridlock on all issues to say nothing of credit union issues. If, however, Biden wins the election and you have a so-called Democratic trifecta, which means that the same party controls the White House and the House of Representatives and the Senate, you would probably see, a, uh, at a minimum, a rollback of some of the regulatory reforms that we've seen in the financial services sector over the last four years, and, and certainly a, probably a drive for more regulation and new, stricter regulation and new reporting and disclosure requirements and that sort of thing. But there might also be opportunities for an expansion of the, the charter, which would seem, you know, things like field of membership, for example, which would seem, you know, less likely in a divided government. A lot remains to be seen. You know, we've still, they got to count all those votes and we'll see what it looks like. How will CUNA and the leagues approach either scenario or any of these scenarios that occur? Obviously, they're a little bit of different strategic approach depending on who you're communicating with. But the common denominator and the thing that we as credit union movement have, our, our secret sauce, if you will, is the stories around the credit union difference. And I think whether you're talking to a Republican administration or a Democratic administration or a Republican-controlled Congress or Democratic-controlled Congress, the thing that we can do the best in our advocacy work is tell that story about how credit unions are advancing their local communities and impacting and transforming the financial lives of their constituents. And that really can be nonpartisan. Sharing those stories, and, and I always encourage credit unions to remember that, you know, you've got CUNA, you've got the leagues that are sort of your hired professionals who can talk about the intricacies of like legislation and regulation and that sort of thing. But the best advocacy weapons that we have are credit unions that can come in 
and be the smartest person in the room when it comes to sharing how a credit union has helped an individual member. And remember that whether you're a Democrat or Republican elected official, members are constituents. And they'll remember those stories about how you've impacted that individual life or uh, saved that local business during the pandemic, for example. What resources do CUNA and the leagues offer to assist credit unions with their advocacy? We've got a lot of them. A couple of things that are relevant that's ongoing and then some that are particular to the elections. And one thing that's ongoing that we think is a really terrific resource is our member activation program or MAP. And you can check it out at cuna.org slash MAP. There's also an online community, uh, CUNA's website you can join. But what the member activation program is, is we provide you as a credit union with ready-made templates. They can be emailed, they can be social media on various campaigns, advocacy-related issues that you can then take and put in your own brand, in your own credit union's look and feel and send out from your end, from the credit union to your members to activate them and educate them on the issues and activate them to mobilize them from a grassroots standpoint. An example of that is an initiative we have going on right now during the election called Credit Unions Vote. This is something we're really proud of. You know, we were talking a minute ago about the uptick in early voting and all of the changes and how people are voting. So we we developed an online tool at creditunionsvote.com that allows a credit union member, really anyone, is public, available to the public, to log on, enter your name and address, and get all the information you need to cast your ballot to register online, to find your polling place if you choose to vote in person. If you want to vote early in person, to find where you can do that, if there are drop boxes to cast a ballot, to request an early ballot. And the really uh, important thing with all this change that's happening in this election is that we've got our tool plugged into every election authority in the country. So as they're making changes, it's updated right away. And to tie it together, we've put together a member activation program toolkit around that. So we've seen credit unions take that information, social media templates, you know, Instagram posts, Facebook posts, email templates, and share the website as a service to their members. And we've seen credit union members across the country take advantage of that. So it's just one example of how the member activation program can be a powerful tool for educating and activating not just members, but credit union employees as well. Are there certain races that you're focusing on more than others? At a 40,000-foot level, CUNA and the leagues and our federal political action committee, QLAC, have uh, invested nearly $7 million in support of over 400 candidates for the House and Senate nationwide. Regardless of political party, Democrat, Republican, Independent, we try to identify the best candidate to run, the best candidate for credit unions who understands and appreciate credit unions. And then we try to support those candidates. And we do that through direct contributions to their campaigns. And we're one of the the largest trade association PACs in the country that does that. But we also do what we like to call priority races, where we find the true credit union champions who happen to be in the toughest reelection fights or the toughest campaigns because of their district or their state. And this cycle, we've got 11 candidates four senators, two Democrats, two Republicans, seven House members, uh, four Democrats, three Republicans. In each of those cases, we're running uh, political advertising. So we're sending direct mailers to voters. 
to credit union households. We're running digital ads. We're doing streaming TV ads on platforms like Hulu. We're running ads on social media platforms like Facebook, all aimed at communicating to the voters and it's in many cases to credit union households that these champions of credit unions are worth your support. So a couple of those just to highlight, for example, I'll take the U.S. Senate as two of the, the closest races that we're following. Gary Peters in Michigan is a Democrat, is a longtime credit union champion, has been one of the strongest supporters of credit unions in the Michigan delegation in the U.S. Senate, is in a really competitive uh, re-election fight. So we're, we're running ads there to try to help him. He's presumed to be one of the few in this year, which might be looking at the polls, trending Democratic, is one of the few Democratic incumbent senators who's under threat of a close race. And so we're trying to help him. And then another example on the Republican side is Susan Collins in Maine, who is a moderate Republican in a blue trending state and one of the most expensive races in history. But she's someone who has authored credit union legislation in the past, was the author of the Senior Safe Act, which we were able to pass into law in the last Congress. And, uh, you know, she's in the fight of her life. So we're running ads there in those. And Bill, one of the things that I we're especially proud of is these ads were able to tie together, not just the messaging to the voters to encourage those voters to vote for this candidate, but to also tie in the credit union difference. So in a lot of our ads this cycle, we are uh, sharing stories with the pandemic, for example, of how local credit unions were able to support struggling small businesses and keep employees on payroll through a paycheck protection program, which wouldn't have been possible without the support of senators like Gary Peters or or Susan Collins or Tina Smith or Steve Daines, to name two others that were helping this cycle. So you've mentioned how the pandemic has affected people's voting habits and also your advocacy. Can you give an example of your approach to advocacy now during the pandemic? One of the biggest changes has been adjusting, as everyone is in every aspect of life these days, but adjusting to uh, sort of a virtual environment. You know, we, we, we've always had, and many podcast listeners have been to CUNA GAC or on a uh, CUNA League hike the hill where they've come to Washington and, and hiked up to the Capitol and sat down with their lawmakers. Obviously, you can't do that. You know, the, the Capitol is closed. People are not traveling in the midst of this pandemic. So we've had to shift and have done so with our league partners, I think, quite effectively to virtual visits. And one of the things that we found a positive out of this is that it actually is a pretty effective way to advocate to your lawmakers. In my shop, interacting with candidates who are not yet elected or uh, with uh, lawmakers who are already in office, we've been able to set up dozens, if not hundreds, of virtual meetings Zoom meetings or Microsoft team meetings or WebEx or what have you with a lawmaker and uh, with credit union members, credit union executives, credit union volunteers, wherever they may be. Two things that have been really exciting about that change. Number one, we're finding we're able to get more of their time, the lawmakers, because you know if, if you've ever been on a, a hill visit or a hike the hill, you know that they're pulled in a bunch of different directions and they're often triple booked for meetings and you might get five minutes in the office uh, with a lawmaker. Now we're finding that they're logged on to a Zoom account meeting with us for a half an hour or more. So you can get a much more rich and in-depth conversation. And then the second thing that we're finding is that it's a great way because we're virtual, it's a great way to expand 
the number of people in the credit union movement that are able to engage in this way. You know, not everyone is able to take time off or have the resources to fly to Washington to spend a few days hiking the hill. A lot more people can take 30 minutes and call into a Zoom meeting from their home or from their office. And so we're seeing uh, a lot more engagement from credit union grassroots in these meetings. Personally, in the, in the meetings that I've been, I've been blown away at hearing some of the stories, particularly in this pandemic. This is maybe another third silver lining of this pandemic, at least for advocacy, is that the work that credit unions are doing on the front lines as financial first responders for their members during this difficult economic climate has just been phenomenal. And to be able to share those stories of how they've saved struggling local business or how they've been able to uh, provide emergency loans or skip a pay programs to uh, you know struggling consumers who might be out of work has just been really phenomenal and it's a great way to showcase to policymakers and lawmakers you know how credians are different and put us in an incredibly favorable light as we start to talk about our advocacy priorities and needs do you think you'll keep the virtual meetings even after it's okay to to meet in person yeah I think that is one thing that is likely to continue. Hopefully everyone has seen that we're, we've just announced our virtual GAC coming up in March, and we're excited about that. But it, to try to get even more people involved in advocacy virtually. But I think as we go forward and as the world comes back to normal, hopefully, knock on wood, we get a vaccine and the pandemic recedes in the rearview mirror, that we'll still be able to take advantage of some of these virtual meetings. I think people are going to be anxious to want to go back to in-person and, and have that direct face-to-face interpersonal contact, obviously, and that's powerful. And I'm certainly <laughs> anxious to do some more of that. But I do think that it's opened up a whole other avenue to, uh, you know, to link up not just credit union employees and credit union leaders, but credit union members who may not have been able to travel to Washington or to a state capital for an advocacy purpose. You know, uh, I think everyone will be much more comfortable with sort of a virtual format so we can maybe share our story more effectively by involving more people. What advice would you offer credit unions about how they should approach advocacy? Do you have any do's and don'ts that you would offer up? A little bit I touched on earlier, but just to spell it out, you don't have to be the expert on the policy. I think people who aren't professional advocates who don't do this every day assume and make the mistake of presuming that you have to know the bill number and you have to know the legislative language and know the ins and outs and the committee process and and all of that. And the truth of the matter is you don't. You know, you've got excellent representation by CUNA and by your state league and trade association that you've in effect hired to do that for you. But what you can do is just be the best messenger you can be about what you're doing every day which in the credit union space is serving your members and providing them value and, you know, that whole people helping people philosophy and not getting so stressed out about the details, but just share what you're doing. And what we've found is that lawmakers and policymakers, you know, you can give them the statistics and the legislative language and all of that all day long, but they'll remember that one heartwarming story of how you helped, you know, a struggling single mother or helped a small business that was trying to get ahead and, and expand or, or stay afloat during difficult times. That's the really powerful stuff of advocacy. And so my advice is always just, you know, focus on that because after all, that's what you, you know better than anyone else anyway. How did you become interested in politics? 
I think I always was interested in history and government and politics. I mean, I remember as a kid watching presidential debates and election returns with my parents. And uh, I thought that I, you know, in college, I majored in history and political science and thought that I wanted to work in government or maybe go to law school or something like that. I got the opportunity to intern on Capitol Hill for a House member and a senator and intern for my home state governor one summer. Coming out of college, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I applied for jobs on Capitol Hill, which are really hard to get. And I didn't get one, but I got the opportunity to go work on a campaign, a congressional campaign. And I thought, well, this is going to be my ticket to, uh, you know, I'm going to go work on this campaign. We're going to win. We're going to come to Washington and I'm going to get a job on Capitol Hill. Well, uh, we lost, which was a lesson in its own, <laughs> lesson of its own, but I kind of got the campaign bug at that. And that kind of started me on this, uh, you know, career path, which has been doing uh, professional politics and fortunate enough, you know, years later to be able to land at CUNA and help an incredible, amazing uh, industry do some of that and, and do some of that campaign political work, but on behalf of a really great industry and people. Do you have a political hero? Not any one particular, but I have a lot of an admiration for the people, many of whom I've known, and there are many that I don't know, who have chosen to put their name on a ballot and run for office. I think politicians get generally a bad rap in our culture and our society as being dirty or corrupt, but you know, and there certainly are bad apples out there, but 99% of them are dedicated public servants who in many ways, whether you're running for school board or president of the United States, are sacrificing a lot, time, money, potentially their careers in order to uh, serve their fellow citizens. And you won't ever see my name on a ballot, <laughs> like working behind the scenes with them. But I've always really admired the people who are willing to drop everything and put their name on a ballot. And that goes whether you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, Green, Libertarian, or what have you. But if you're willing to do that, it says a lot. Is there anything else you'd like to add? As we close out this election, you know, I, I encourage everyone listening to this to cast their ballot, to check out creditunionsvote.com if they have questions about that. And then also, I haven't mentioned yet, but check out CUNA's new elections page, which we just launched. It's cuna.org slash elections. And we have a map of the United States. You can click on your state and you can see each of the candidates, the pro-credit candidates that CUNA and your state league are supporting for the U.S. House and U.S. Senate, as well as examples of some of our ads and some press coverage around credit union political activity. It's a great resource. We, we want to be 100% transparent with who we're supporting. And then check back after Election Day because we'll be updating that with who all won and which of those candidates will be sworn into Congress come January. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.